All right, this week's going to be a little different than a typical Sunday. Um, I want to alert you guys to a couple of things. One is, um, if you go to your, your app store, can y'all still hear me? I can't tell. I'm, I'm biased. I'm right next to it. So if y'all can't hear me, I need you to be like, turn the levels up. Um, if you go to your local app store, you'll see that Pillar Church now has an app. On that app, you ha you'll have all your children's videos, all of our past sermons, videos, and audio. Um, you can listen to any of them purely audio if you want to, however you want to do it. But uh, what I want to take note of this week, because this is going to be a different word than normal, um, is that you are able to take notes on the app and attach it by date or however you want to. So in your app, you have the ability to take notes. If you notice in your cross-reference sheet, there's no cross-references. It's just blank lines. That's because this week is going to be a little, this Sunday is going to be a little different. I want you guys to be taking notes on something. Uh, my, my goal and my prayer this week is that you guys learn to fish for yourselves. And so I won't be expositing a passage of scripture like we typically do. I'm going to be trying to show you guys, give you a method to fish on your own. So I want you guys to be taking notes. I'm going to say words that you probably have never heard of. Write those words down. Look those words up. Uh, we will be doing a disservice to you as the people of God if we didn't uh, help you and serve you in this particular way. A lot of people will say, leave this type of thing for a Bible study. But instead of leaving it for a Bible study, I want to give it to the, to the largest amount of people possible. And that happens to be on Sunday. And so that's what we're going to do. Before we get in, let's pray and ask God's blessing on the morning. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity we have to gather together as the people of God, to hear the word of God. Lord, would you, would you encourage our souls right now? Would you be so present in and through us that we don't feel the chill in the air, but that we are warned because our blood is, is our, our blood has been warned because of the presence of God. That as we think about you, we, the chills dissipate. Lord, a lot of us have had weeks that have been difficult. A lot of us have gone to your word looking for comfort, for truth, for help, for aid in one way or another. Some of us have found it and some of us have not. Some of us are expecting things of you that you've never promised. And some of us are awaiting the promises that we know you have said and promised. So, Lord, as we wait. Would you give us a divine sense of patience and joy, of peace and of satisfaction in you so that, so that as we eagerly wait, await what it is that you have for us, we are fully satisfied and content with your presence with us. Father, bless this time, bless this word. Bless the ears of these people. Help them to be attentive to this. Because I believe, Lord, that if this is applied rightly, these people will be able to feed themselves for years to come. After I'm dead and gone, after Pillar is gone, after this city is, is, has shifted and changed, just like every other city will shift and change, but they will have principles and, 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 and benchmarks to stick, to stick with as they read your word. 
as they move and as they grow. In Christ's name, we ask your blessings. Amen. Amen. Ooh, I cannot see. Hold on. See, this is the problem not being inside. When I got everything all set up. Oh, oh yeah. There we go. Well, uh, if you oh, if you need a pen, we have a bunch of pens right there on the um, that little table over there. So if you need a pen, we can get you a pen. But you're gonna want to take notes. At least I hope you want to take notes. Good morning again. My name is Kanan Parker. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. Uh, and this morning, we are still continuing our series in the book of Jude called Contending for the Faith, but we're not going to exposit, as I said, any verses in Jude. Rather, we're going to look through um, some principles to help us grow in our faith in general. And I think it still fits the theme of contending for the faith. I remember uh, one time when I was in grade school getting a take-home test. I don't know if y'all remember getting a take-home test at school. Back before you could plug in the answer into Google and get, and get the answer you wanted. Y'all remember them take-home tests? Well, this one particular time, uh, it was a math test I was getting to take home. And, you know, when you get to take home a math test, that's good because you can look in all the, all the notes and all that stuff in the book. It was an open book test, all that. And so I got the take home test and I knew in my head and in my heart I was going to bang this test out. I knew I was about to get an ace on this test because I, for the first time in my life, had studied. I had memorized stuff. I understood solutions. Y'all ain't the only one now. Come on. I, I, I understood. I knew I was going to get an ace on this test. Plus, I wanted to impress my sister and my mother. And my personality type is if you challenge me and tell me I can't do something, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Just, and it's not always the right motive, but I'm just saying, you say, oh, you can't do that. Okay. Right? And I remember my sister was like, Kenny, you're never going to get 100 on these math tests. And I was like, oh, all right. So I studied that whole week, waiting for that test to come. Um, and then I wanted to impress my moms because my sister was always the intelligent one in the family. She was the one that got the A's and the B's and I was the C and the D student. So I get to the class. Uh, I get the take home test. I go home and I get right to work. And I'm talking about I drop at the kitchen table right to work and question after question. I'm banging it out. Oh, that's eight. Oh, that's seven point three. Oh, oh I'm, I, and I know it. I know, I'm, I, know I'm, I know I'm about to ace this test. I went beast mode on the test. I knew I was about to get it. And then I went to my sister and I said, check my work. Uh-huh. Check it. And she's checking my work, right? And guess what she found? Not one wrong answer, right? And so I'm like, yep. So I'm excited because I'm about to get 100 on this test. First time in my life I was going to see the one zero zero out there in red. You know, the red letters matter, right? Y'all get it? You know, Christian joke, right? go into class. I put it on the teacher's desk. Boom. I don't know. I don't remember what grade. It's between fourth and seventh grade, somewhere in there. Wow. Plap it on the desk. I'm like, uh-huh. Go back to the seat. And I know the next day we're going to get our test back. So the next day comes and the teacher calls, calls each student up to grab their test. Kane and Parker to the front. Went up to the front. Grabbed it. And it was missing a couple numbers. It was missing a one. And it was missing a zero. And I was like, hold up. So you can imagine, right? I did all this work. I studied. I get the, pa I get the paper back and it says zero percent. And I looked at the teacher and I had all kind of unsanctified thoughts in my head. All kind of evil things I was wishing on this teacher at the moment, right? And so I started giving her the death stare. Because I'm like, I study for this. Like, I'm looking like, are you serious? And then she says, read the note underneath the zero. So I read the note and it said three words. 
And if you're a teacher, you know these words. Show your work. Oh, see, y'all got burned by it before, huh? See? Show your work. And I'm looking like, how are you going to tell me to show my work? I got a hundred. I got every answer right. And you getting at me to show my work? Are you serious right now? I was so mad. And I folded that paper up, put it in my pocket. My mom and my sister haven't heard about it till this day until they see this message. I hit it, just like all my other zeros. Kids don't do that. So I asked the, the, the teacher, you mean to tell me I got every answer right, but because I didn't show my work, I got a zero. And she said, yep, that's right. And I started to, to have thoughts in my head, like, why? I didn't understand. I didn't understand that my teacher was saving my life by forcing me to show my work. What I didn't appreciate then, I certainly appreciate now. The process of how you come to the right answer is just as important as the answer that you've come to, come to find yourself. If you don't have a solid process in order to come to the conclusions you've come to, then the conclusion may be off and you'll have no way of tracking or tracing how and why you went off track. You can't use the same methods to solve every equation. Binomials and quadratic equations are solved differently. And in the text, there are different types of text. There are different authors. There are different histories. There's different everything. Every book is unique. Every book has a different bent. Every book has a different, uh, not everybody, a uh, bunch of the books have different authors. That means that the method by which you interpret those words cannot apply and be the same all the way through. They have to be nuanced. Otherwise, you'll find yourself misinterpreting what the scriptures teach and what they say. You need a sound interpretational method in order to interpret the text. And that's what my hope and my desire is for you. My teacher was keeping me from getting caught up in wrong thinking by forcing me to show my work on the different forms of math that were on that quiz. And my hope this morning is that I can give you some principles to run by so that as you read the text, you're able to interpret it rightly. Does that make sense, y'all? You see, there's two different ways, uh, two different methods that people tend to get caught up in this world. We get caught up emotionally. That's the first way. We get caught up emotionally. That's what we looked at last week at Jude 16. Remember in Jude 16, it says that they had a discontent uh, disposition and they were spreading that amongst their people to be discontent with God. That's an emotional case. It's called getting caught up emotionally. And then they were for, uh, causing them to chase their own desires rather than trying to discern what God's desires were that was, was for them. And so they caused them to chase that. And then they would, flatter, they would flatter these different individuals, lifting up things about them rather than lifting up Jesus. That's called getting caught up emotionally. But there's another way that we get caught up in this world, and that's called getting caught up intellectually. It's like when you get that home loan, but you don't understand the terms. Right? It's like when you go to the mechanic and, they, and they, they pull a fast one on you because you don't understand intellectually all that goes in to fixing your car. What could be a $30 fix turns into a $300 fix and we don't know any different because we're ignorant. And the same is true for individuals when it comes to the scriptures. Individuals twisting and turning the text and we don't know any better than to run with the twist or the distortion that they've put on us. Does that make sense, y'all? 
So this morning, we're going to try to adhere to Jude verse 3, where Jude told his listeners, he said, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. You cannot contend, you cannot defend without proper technique. Have you ever seen somebody who has no technique try to defend themselves? It always ends bad for that individual. We need to be able to defend ourselves. Now, I recognize this as a pastor. I have the privilege of my eyes being in God's word so much more than most other people. And so I tend to take things like this for granted. And so my desire is to take what I do, part of what I do throughout the week, and give that to you so that you have the tools to do anything that I'm doing throughout the week, given you have the time to do it. Uh, this last couple, uh, a week or two ago, I took my daughter fishing. And uh, as we were fishing, you know, in the beginning, I had to cast all her, all her rods for her because she didn't know how to, cast, how to cast a rod. But after she watched for a little bit, she was like, oh, okay, daddy. And then, she, and then one of them started criticizing me. Daddy, shouldn't you do it this way? And it's like, bro, you don't know how to fish. Don't be criticizing me. You don't know how to fish. Isn't that funny, though? We do the same thing with pastors in the pulpit, don't we? Oh, he, he, man, he didn't get that one right. He didn't do this. It's like, hold up. Do you know how to fish? Do you know how to study? Do you, before we criticize, let's, let's figure out what this thing is. Let's figure out what it is that they do with the word of God. After she started watching me for a little while, my, my, my oldest daughter went around the other side of the lake with, with her mother. And all of a sudden, after a couple of mess ups, shoo, she cast that joint. Only went two feet, but she did it, though. Right. She was doing it. And now she's on the way to fishing for herself. And guess what? She'll never be hungry now because now she knows how to fish. And so my desire is ain't that right, girls. Yep. Look at her. <laughs> I want to give you six benchmarks. It's really like 12 and I kind of made them six. So six benchmarks are going to help you learn how to fish for yourselves. The first one is this. Pray until you pray before you read. I said it like that on purpose. Pray until you pray before you read. I know the temptation is to say a little quick, little quick one up to the Lord and then jump right into the text or just jump right into the text. But have y'all ever been on your knees and tried to pray? But all of a sudden you realize, hold up, now I'm praying. You ever, that ever happened to you? You've been on your knee and you stayed there. You tarried long enough where in the beginning we're just talking, but now it's communicating. Right. Stay in that posture. Pray until you pray. Pray until you feel like you've communicated to God and you are able to relay your heart unto him. Some scriptures will not reveal their treasures to you until you unlock them with the key of prayer. Some scriptures will not relay their treasures to you until you unlock them with the key of prayer. Sometimes you read a text and not understand it. You pray, you wait, you plead with God, you read it again. And now it's like, oh, wait a minute. This is not as confusing as I thought it was. I, that's never happened to you. Didn't try it. It happens. It happens to me all the time. Some of the key uh, to understanding the text is to pray. We must remember that it's first and foremost God who gives sight to the blind which is why we pray. If we come to the th text thinking we can see, we're deceiving ourselves. Come to the text as a blind man begging for sight. Come desperate like you're underwater in need of air. That's how you need to approach the text. That's your disposition toward the text. I need to understand God, please give me eyes to see. That's the disposition. James chapter one, verses nine through 12 says this. It says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of this, we haven't stopped praying for you. 
And we are asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will, all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Notice what happens first. First, he said, we're praying for you. Then he says, this is what we're asking that God would do. And then all of a sudden it's these different things, growing knowledge of him, walk worthy of him. It all happens after prayer. Prayer is first. Prayer is imperative. Start with prayer. Pray until you pray. That'll help to keep you from getting caught up. The second one is this. Read the text. Sounds simple, right? Read the text. But I said it that simply because we simply don't do that. You know what we do? We breeze the text. How many times have you read about the crucifixion of Christ? You read right past that joint. And kept moving through the Passion Week. And then they crucified him. And then they took his And then they did it. And it's like you didn't even register the words that were on the page. What goes into a crucifixion should cross your mind as you're reading those words. How they took an individual and stripped him. How they put nails six to nine inches long through his flesh, his body. The word excruciating. That word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. How his lungs were dropping and he wasn't, wasn't able to breathe. You see, when you read the text, you feel the text. You're trying to put yourself in the text. Read it slow. Don't breathe the text. What we do is we read it and we assume we understand it. Because we just breeze through it. But I want you guys to read it slow. Now I'm going to get a little technical. In order to, to, to read the text slow and feel like you're in it, you need to get a translation that you can understand. And there are different philosophies when it comes to Bible translation. You have something called formal equivalence. And then on the other side, you have something called dynamic equivalence. Formal equivalence is a more word for word translation. It's trying to find the English word that matches the Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic word as closely as humanly possible. Dynamic is a thought for thought translation. It's trying to relay the gist of what the author is saying. And so you will need to find a translation that meets and fits your brain as well as is faithful to the original uh, writing of the text, which is why at Pillar we use the CSB, because we believe that the CSB is a perfect blend of dynamic and formal equivalence. Um, uh, an example of a real formal equivalent translation is the New American Standard Bible. Right. That, that's a very formal equivalent Bible. It's very choppy, especially in the Old Testament. It's very choppy in its language. An example of a dynamic equivalent is like the New Living Translation, where it's very easy to read. I mean, even the NIV, very smooth, very easy to read, very 21st century in its language, right? You want to find something that's faithful to the original, but readable for you now. Because if it's not readable for you now, it does you no good. You understand? You, got, you want to find a bold one. And I suggest you have, and when you're, when you're serious about your reading, you try two different translations. You get one, and then you either lean to the dynamic or to the formal. So when I do my study, I actually go both ways. I have a paraphrased Bible that I use called the Message Bible. And then I have the NASB and an interlinear, which is very formal. Interlinear means it shows you the Greek word, then it shows you the English word right under it. And it shows you the Greek word, then the English word right under it. So I use both. Why? Because... This scholar who put together this work has a working knowledge of that word. And so I want to see, well, how's he using this word? Okay. Well, how's he using it? How are they translate? Okay. And it's going to give you a fuller understanding of a particular passage. And we're going to get into that a little bit more too. 
but I suggest you get two different translations. If I were you and I was trying to study, I would get the CSB and the NASB. If I, if I were you and I, I just wanted to be a devotional time of reading, maybe the CSB and the New Living. Okay, that, that's where I would go. That's kind of where I would go. After you have your text that you're reading, write that text down. Look in your cross-reference sheet. In the back of the, of, the, of the insert, you see my work from Jude chapter 14 and 15 that we preached two weeks ago. This is, my, this is, this is what I did. Highlight, and what, what am I showing you this for? I want, you want to start highlighting certain words, keywords, phrases, words that are very important. You know what some of the most important words are in your text? The smallest, most insignificant words there. The word but the word to, the word about, the word was. Was can change an entire statement from one thing to another, right? But is a reversal of what, what somebody was saying to something else. Those are the most important words in your passage. The big words are great, but the little words are very important. You want to highlight them, circle them. You want to circle repeating words. As you can see, I have the word all and ungodly. Every time it occurs, I had it circled. You see, I'm underlining words. I'm, I'm, I'm circling names. The name of Enoch is circled. Why? What did he do? Why well, he prophesied. Then in the middle, it says where, he's, where he was located, the seventh generation from Adam. You see my little question mark, Genesis question mark. What does that mean? It means I got to find that. Where is that? Is that in the Old Testament? Because remember, Jude likes to quote things that aren't in the Old Testament, right? So I got to find that. Notice the words that are in green. This is where you start looking up the actual definition of certain words. There's arrogant, there's flattering, there's desires. I put the word look up next to those. Why? Because sometimes the English word is slightly deceiving or sometimes there's not a good translation from that word to English. And so you want to look it up. Let me give you an example that you're all familiar with. You're all familiar with love. But I say I love my wife and I love TJ completely differently, right? But we only have one word and we use other words in context to define the type of love I'm talking about. But in Greek, as you may or may not already know, that there's several words for love. So the context means less because there's more specific terms. You have agape or agapeo, which is a strong desire, or it's a powerful love. It's not God's love. Look it up. It's not the only love that God has. It's not what it means. Oh, I don't know you heard that. Look it up. It just means a strong, powerful love. It says that the Pharisees agapeo, their, their high seats of high places. That's not God's love. They had an evil, strong passion for the seats that they had. Then there's phileo, that's a brotherly love. There's eros, which is an erotic love. There's storge, which is a, a love like a parent to a child. It's an empathetic love. It's a parental love. We just got love. So you want to start looking up these words to see, well, when Jesus said love, which one did he mean? When Paul said, I love him, when David said he loved Jonathan, which one? Now, those are Greek. That would be in a Hebrew example. So once we've, does that make sense? Y'all still here? I'm trying to teach y'all how to fish, man. This is important. This is important. Do not depend on me for your spiritual growth. My job here is to shepherd you and to love you. And I want to lead you to a place where you can read on your own despite me. If I lead you to only be able to eat when I'm around, I've failed you. This is why this is important. And I'll get to some reasons why it's important again later. So once we've prayed until we prayed, once we read the text, number three is this. You want to flex the context. You want to flex the context. In the world of hotels, 
there's a, a, a word that they say three times. It's the most important word when it comes to placing a hotel. Y'all have heard it. Real estate, when the world of real estate, same way, what is it? Location, 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 right? Right, and, and if y'all listen to, to, some of y'all listen to Jay-Z's work, he talks about that in his album, 444, where he's like, man, I bought this, this place changed, and now it's worth this many million. <laughs> now it's worth this many, why? Because he bought in a good location. Well, in the world of biblical interpretation, it's three words, same word, but it's just as important. Context, context, context. Context is king when it comes to understanding the Bible. You ever been at that Bible study and it started like this? Well, what did that mean to you? Some of y'all are guilty of that, right? Don't do that. Don't ever start with, well, what does this mean to you? Why? Because it doesn't matter what it means to you until you understood what it meant to them. And so if you ever started, or you attempted to start your Bible study that way, if I called you out and the, the, you're sitting next to somebody you just did it with, my bad. But you, you, you never start it that way. What does it mean to you? A word can only mean what it means based on its context. Somebody give me the definition of bat right now. Flying black animal. I went to the field and I hit a ball with a bat. Can't be a flying black animal that time, right? It, what happened? The context changed the definition. I wasn't trying to embarrass nobody. I just, I, that's on purpose. That's on purpose. Somebody defined the word point. Am I making a point? Am I pointing at something? Is it the point of a pencil? Somebody defined the word pet. Is it an animal? Am I touching? It is? So if I do this, is that an animal? What is that? It is, baby? Oh, I got work to do with my baby. She's like, it's an animal. I don't care what you say. Every word means what it means based on the context around it. When I say I love my brother, the context will tell you what form of love I have for him. You got to have context. Now, I'm going to give you, here's why all my sub points are showing up. I'm going to give you different forms of context to look out for as you're reading the Bible. Okay? There's historical context. What's going on in history at this point in time? And that's a broad thing. What's just going on? What's happening in this empire right now? Where are they geographically? Who's, who's the emperor or the king or the leader right now? That's going to change how you read it when you know that. You know, you change. Okay, okay. Second one is authorial context or who the author is. What's the author's background? Is he a Gentile? Is he a Jew? Is it a female? Is it a male? Is it a... That's going to change how you read the text. Where are they coming from? What's their perspective? What's their background? The third one is the audience context. Who's receiving this letter? Who, what, what is it that these individuals do or do not already know based on the time of history that you're in already? Because we'll assume that certain things are written in certain times. Ah, it's going to get too far. We'll assume that these authors know things they don't know. Or that these audiences have understandings that they don't have. I wrote this in, in my notes. If you change the source, you change the meaning. This is why the, the context of the person is so important. If you change the source, you change the meaning. If I say the word boy, and, my, and you, you look at me, and you start doing contextual work on Canaan, all right, you know, it's 21st century, inner city, African-American male, da-da-da. If he says the word boy, it's probably meaning friend, right? But if you were to go back in time and change me to, from, not, from African-American male to a white male, Maybe it's a, 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 a plantation owner, and, and you say he said the word boy, it's no longer meaning friend, is it? The context doesn't change everything about that word. 
If I say the word crib, what does it mean? Look at me contextually, you know that when I say the word crib, I'm probably talking about a house. But if you look in a dictionary, and this is why you need a lexicon, I'll get into that too. But if you look in a dictionary, crib means a baby's bed, right? The context matters. You can't ignore it. And what we tend to do, what most of us do, is we read the Bible and we just ignore all of that. And we just read that mug. Now, can the Lord bless your soul by just reading that mug? Absolutely. He has and he does. He's God. But what I'm saying is if you want a, a depth beyond just what you think it means, then you got to consider these different forms of context. Then you got to consider the genre, the contextual genre of the book. I know it's a lot, right? Hope I ain't boring y'all. I'm trying to teach y'all to eat, man. This is important for y'all. The contextual genre. What kind of writing is this? Okay, that, that matters. Is it a history book? That just recording a narrative of somebody of history. That's what you find in like the book of Acts, per se, in the New Testament, the Old Testament, the book of Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Those are just histories. They're narratives. They're more descriptive and less prescriptive. Descriptive is I'm just telling you what happened. Prescriptive is I'm telling you what to do. I'm telling you what to mimic. Is it a historical book? Is it an epistle? Remember I said descriptive and prescriptive? Well, epistles are prescriptive. It's called didactic. It means for the purpose of instructing. An epistle is like the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, the book of 1 John, right? These authors are telling these people what to do, what to believe, what is true and what is false. Most sermons are didactic. They're epistle-like. I'm telling you what God wants you to hear based on my prayer and the word of God, the study of the word, right? It's, it's instructional. Is it poetic? The book of Psalms, Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. Those are po Ecclesiastes. Those are poetic books. How you interpret a history book is not the same how you interpret, interpret a poetic book. Because if I say you smell like nard. Y'all ever read Song of Solomon? You read that and you're like, ooh, that, that sounds that sound frisky. <laughs> smell like nard, baby, ooh. And it's like, oh, you're like the, the cliffs of mountains of Kadar and all this kind of stuff, right? You read that differently than you would an epistle or you would a history book. It, he's poetic. Nobody actually smells like roses. In fact, you don't want a spouse that does. But what does that mean? You see how it changed the meaning? Because you knew the genre. We do this naturally, but we need to be intentionally doing it. Then there's apocalyptic, which is mostly figurative. That's like the book of Revelation, part of the book of Daniel. These are apocalyptic. It's, it's talking about things that are, our brain is, it's even hard for our brains to imagine. They're so figurative, but they do have an actual meaning to them. That's the, the context based on genre. There's one more in this, in this theme, the topical or grammatical context. Okay. The t there's a lot of work, right? Y'all think dudes be sweet out here. Just get up here and start talking. Nah, there's work that goes into these, the topical or grammatical context. What's the whole, what's the major theme of this book? In fact, in your discipleship groups here in, in, in several weeks from now, you're going to be receiving information based on the theme of the book that we're reading together as a church so that those will act as guardrails to keep you from interpreting the book all willy nilly. When you understand the theme of the book, it, it automatically constrains you. And then you go, well, what's this chapter about? Then you go, OK, what's this paragraph in this chapter about? And then you try to find the flow of the person's argumentation. You see, if you don't do this, you end up having theology that may be right, but you're using the wrong verse for it. Y'all know that song? Wherever two or three, right? Are gathered in his name. Don't laugh at me. I can't sing. 
he'll be there, right? That's true, God's there, but does that mean if there's one that God's not there? It's the right doctrine, wrong verse. That, that you took that verse and you stripped it from its context. That verse is talking about church discipline. But we took it and made it sound like, oh, this is talking about God's everywhere always. It might be saying that as a secondary means, but it's primarily not talking about that. We stop pulling verses out that sound good. I know, I know the plans for you, plans to prosper you. You have a hope and a future, right? We snacked that joint up because we're like, that sounds great. Who's he talking to? What's it talking about? Why does that matter? Because it changes whether or not that applies to you the way you want it to apply to you. Because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, right? What do we do? We take that verse and it's like, yeah, I'm going to do these push-ups. I have a six-pack by May because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. It has nothing to do with that. And that's why you got to pull back from the verse. What's the chapter? I mean, what's the paragraph about? Pull back now. What's the chapter about? Pull back now. What's the book talking about? What kind of book is this? Now, when you read that verse, it makes more sense. It's in its proper place. I can do all things. It's talking about endurance in the face of hardship and persecution. I can endure. I can last because God got me. So you pray until you pray. I'm giving you all light work on this. This is not depth deep in any of these categories. I'm giving you just an overview, okay? So you pray until you pray. You slowly read the text. You flex the context. Now you search the scriptures for confirmation or confrontation. Okay, you search the scriptures for confirmation or confrontation. What does that mean? You're looking for other verses, other passages that either confirm your findings or, conf or, or against your findings. It's called, this is called the analogy of faith. It means that if you come up with an interpretation of a passage that contradicts another passage, you're probably wrong and you need to redo your work. And so you're looking for verses that seem to say something contrary to what you're saying, or you're finding verses that complement what it is that you were saying. Now, that can be dangerous. That can be called cherry-picking verses. I'm not going to get into all that, but I'm going to help you with that a little bit later, slightly. See, we, we want to do this because we want to avoid something. Um, we want to... Uh, what am I saying? Okay, I said that. Okay, I don't know where this fits in, but just take this, right? Part of what we're doing is we're doing this because what we like to do is add and subtract our own meanings to a particular verse or to a particular text based on our cultural and, and historical backgrounds. So we read a verse and we make it say what we want. That's called eisegesis. That's E-I-E-G-E-S-I-S. -E -E -S. That's how you spell eisegesis. We take a word and we put our own meaning into it. Let me give you an example. There's a local cult who says that every time the word Gentile is found in the New Testament, it really is talking about a Jew. That's a problem because if you do any of this, if you show your work on that, then you see that there's different words for Gentile. Particularly, there's one called ethnos and there's another one called helenustos. Ethnos means you are literally a different ethnicity. Helenustos means you are of the same ethnicity. However, you have been assimilated into another foreigner's culture. So if you read the word Gentile and it's ethnos, then you know it's talking about somebody who is completely different than the people who are the, the, the actor in, 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 the, in the book. But if it says Helenustos, it means we are the same ethnicity, but you done flipped and you're now different because you grew up in a different area or a different colony. Does that make sense? 
And so when you're reading that word, what people do is they read that word and then they read in what they want it to mean. That's called eisegesis. What you're trying to do is pull out what it actually means. That's called exegesis. That's E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. You want to expunge the original intended meaning that God had and that the author had out of the text, even if it means you don't like what, what it comes out. Because sometimes we read something, we don't like the way it sounds, so we start flipping and changing words, or we try to find a translation that fits better so that it says what we want it to say. I'm tempted to do it just like all of y'all. Don't do that. Let the text say what it says, and then we just deal with the consequence. This is where um, Bible reading comes in handy. As you're looking for verses that say something similar, when you're just reading through the Bible, if you just make it a habit of reading your Bible daily, through your Bible, you will have such a mind, uh, such a treasury of knowledge in your head that you're able to pull things. Oh, didn't this say this in Galatians? Wait, this said this in Genesis. You remember, you don't have to be a scholar. Just read the Bible. Keep it on rotate. Just read it, read it. All of a sudden, you're pulling verses out of nowhere. You ever see those people? They're just just quoting the scripture everywhere. And oh, it says in John, it says in that's one to be like, because they just know it. Part of me is like, I hate that you do it. But the other part of me is like, man, I admire that so much about you. Right now, some people are doing it to show off. Others are doing it because the scriptures are in them. And that's what reading the text does. You, you're trying to find the, the, marinar- the, the, the meta-narrative, the, the story of the whole text. All right, I'm going to skip some stuff. So now that you've prayed until you prayed before you read the text, then you read the text, then you flex the context, then you search the scriptures for confirmation and confrontation. Now you need to apply the covenantal rules. And you're like, what is that? I, I, that's a nuance. That's something that when you actually read your Bible normally, you don't think about that. But I think about it because I think about our neighborhood and I think about the different influencers in our neighborhood uh, religiously. And if you don't apply the covenantal rules, you end up applying things that do not apply to you. There are there are multiple covenants There's micro covenants and macro covenants in the Bible. There's a bunch of them. You know, you've heard the word if you read it. But there are two covenants in particular that are like prominent in the scriptures. They're the most prominent two covenants. And one is called the old covenant. The other one's called the new covenant. Right. And each one of these covenants has a priest, a sacrificial system and a law. The old covenant. The priest was the, was Moses' brother Aaron. It was his priesthood that God had established. It was called the Aaronic priesthood. That was the, that was the priest, the intercessor between people and God, was Aaron and all the people whom Aaron had brought under him to do this work. The sacrificial system, as you all know, was taking bulls and goats and sheep and, and, and doves, right, and grain, and slitting their throat and offering them on the altar, right? You all know the, the old sacrificial system? There's a reason why we don't do that right now. You're applying the covenantal rules without knowing it. Then there's a law. And most notably, you know what? The Ten Commandments, right? But it's not just ten. It's actually 600 plus laws. And you'll find that that whole unit from Exodus 19 to Exodus 24. The old covenant is something called bilateral. It means if you, then I will. That's how God is operating at this point. If you obey, you will receive blessings. If you disobey, you will receive curses. But when you read the text, you see some some things said in the New Testament about that old covenant. That if you don't apply these principles, you'll start sacrificing animals. And you'll start not shaving and not wearing two different kinds of fabric in your clothes and wearing fringes and all the other stuff. 
Let me give you some verses. Write these verses down. Look them up on your own time. These speak of the old covenant. Matthew 5, 17. Romans 10, 4. Galatians 3, 23 through 25. Really the whole chapter of Galatians 3. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And the one, my favorite, Hebrews chapter 7 and 8. Most notably, chapter 8, verse 13, the last verse of that chapter. What those are telling you is that the old covenant has been rendered obsolete, completed, fulfilled in the person of Christ. Remember I said each covenant comes with a priest, a sacrificial system, and a law? Well, the new covenant is no different. It just looks different. Who's the priest of the new covenant? Who's the connector point between men and God? Jesus. What's the sacrificial system of the new covenant? Jesus. Sacrifice upon the cross, right? What's the law of the new covenant? It's called the law of Christ. This is a unilateral covenant. It means that God will because Christ did. And anybody found in Christ did too. Not on their own, but because they're found in him. Let me give you some verses for that. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 21. Now, admittedly, I must tell you this. There is more, there is some cloudiness in, the specific, in all the details of the law of Christ. But we understand the, 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 the crux of it. And that's if you go study and looking in languages and all that kind of stuff. There is more, there's some cloudiness there, but it's also been written in like a quarter at a time compared to the Old Testament. We have to be, we have to, if we're not careful to apply these covenantal rules that we read in the Old Testament, or we're not careful to, re, uh, let, me, let me read this to you. I'm just going to read it. If we're not careful to apply the covenantal rules, we will read Old Covenant requirements into today rather than recognizing that we live under a new covenant and need to apply that filter rather than the filter of the old. There's a reason why we are not having a priest in a sacrificial system today. It's because we are applying the rules of the new covenant. And so when you're reading these letters from Paul, who is historically what, based on who he is? He's a Jew who was born in a Gentile region, right? So he has a perspective to speak to both, and he's writing to you about covenants. He probably knows what he's talking about. You probably need to go there and major in that, cat, in that chapter because he knows what he's talking about in that area. All right, number six, last one. So you need to pray until you pray, read the text, flex the context, search the scriptures for confirmation and confrontation, apply the covenantal rules, know where you are when it comes to which covenant you're under. The sixth one and the last one is this. All roads must lead to Jesus, not you. All the roads of your interpretation must lead to Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that one little verse isn't applying to you or two verses aren't applying to you. It means that when you take the totality of what the author is saying, if it ends with you, you've misinterpreted the passage. It needs to lead you to the Savior in some way, shape, or form, whether it's showing you your own sinful depravity that leads you to the Savior because now, now you need help, right? 
but in any way, shape, or form, is to lead you there. Just like the new covenant, the answer to the priesthood is Jesus, and the sacrificial system is Jesus, and the law is the law of Christ. Same thing with the Bible. When people come to you and say, what's the Bible about? It's one word. The Bible's about Jesus. If you didn't know that, it's, it's what Jesus said it. Here's a verse, John chapter 5, verse 39. This is my favorite one of all of them, but there's multiple ones. And I, I left out like four, but John uh, 3. But John chapter 5, verse 39 says, You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet it is they that testify about me. Luke chapter 24, verse 27 through 44. Or 27 and 44. It says, Then beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. Verse 44 says this. This is Jesus talking. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened, then this is what Jesus did, and they opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's why we start with prayer. We, we, we went all the way back full circle. We want God to open our minds to understand the scriptures. But notice what Jesus did. Jesus made, is going to show the word, is going to show him the, the, the thread of thought that leads all the text back to him. The same thing that I'm hoping that we will do when we leave this place. That we will start to show our work when it comes to what we believe and why we believe it. Do you believe that Jesus is God? If you believe that, you need to know why you believe that. Where is that taught? Who was the author that said it? Is the author biased to believe it? Historically, who's believed this in the past? Why do we still believe it now? You should know that because it's one of the, one of the foundations of, of your faith. You believe in a triune God. We do, I do. Why? Show your work. Because if you don't show your work, no matter who you speak to, if they don't believe you, you failed. F. You get a big fat red zero on your test. Get, showing your work is just as important as the answer you produce. But here's the inevitable result of showing your work. You fall in love with Jesus even more. See, this process isn't about knowing more about the Bible or knowing more about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. You see, what we do is we start holding Jesus accountable for things he never said he would do because we misread the passage. But when you properly read the passage, you're like, oh, my Lord, this is what you had for me. You're so kind. You're so gracious. Thank you. This is what this meant. Oh, man. And all of a sudden you find yourself worshiping. You go from an academic exercise to an exercise of the spirit and worship because your mind has just discovered the truth of a passage. And now you can't help but sing praises because you get something. That's what this is about. Not getting more knowledge. It's getting more of the Savior. You appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus more when you understand the depravity of man better. When you understand the Old Testament sacrificial system was a shadow of what Jesus was coming to do. And you read that and you're like, God, you were telling us the whole time was about to go down. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You stop praising. It can't end with academics. It must lead to, pr to praise. I tell you all these things. Because we live in a day where cults will lead us astray by twisting God's word. If anybody ever comes to you with a weird understanding of the text, this is what you should ask them. Show your work. How'd you get there? Line it up for me. You know what's funny? I did this recently with a brother. 
who brought me to a particular passage in the book of Deuteronomy, trying to convince me of a truth that I had thought was hellacious. And it is. So what I did is we laid out the whole passage and we started circling words and looking up different words in, in, in different languages. That brother doesn't believe that stuff no more. At least not from that passage. You, somebody tells you something, tell them to show your work. Show your work. Why do I tell you these things? Because we live in a day where churches want you to, uh, where churches want you to make, uh, want you, want, rather would make you feel good rather than equip you to feed yourself. Y'all notice that this isn't the most inspiring thing, right? I don't care. <laughs> really don't care. If you leave here being able to feed yourself, that's what I care about. I don't want you to be dependent on me. That's why I said at the beginning, do not depend on Pastor Canaan. I'm here. I'm going to help you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to do all that stuff. I'm here. I got you. But do not depend on me. Your relationship with God is your relationship with God. Why do I tell you all these things? Because we live in a day where people's thoughts and opinions are everywhere, especially because of social media. And we need an objective filter to run all of life through. And if we misuse the filter, it will not benefit us any. And the last one, which I jumped the gun and said early because I was all excited. We do this because we love Jesus and we want to know him, not just know about him. My prayer, as I'm going to pray, is that y'all take this and you start slow. All you're doing is getting the, getting the casting motion. You ain't casting that. Nothing's on the hook. Just get the motion. Start applying one, one principle, maybe two. Then you start casting with no bait on it. Maybe three or four principles, right? Because you don't want to waste that bait. It costs money, right? Just a little, little principle. After you start applying all these principles, now you can start catching some fish. And then you can start eating. My prayer is that this led you closer to that. Amen. Father, thank you for, thank you for caring about these people more than I do. Thank you for putting it, putting them in a position to be able to, to see what it looks like, even from a, from a, you know, 30,000 foot height to kind of see downward to see, okay, what is this text saying? What does it look, what, what, how am I reading this? Why do I believe what I believe? Lord, I believe that these people will be tested and challenged. I believe that they're going to be challenged by cults. They're going to be challenged by people who believe funny things, believe things that are not true. And that we are not going to be able to show our work. And whether or not we have the right answer, Lord, if we can't show our work, we can be demoralized by a confrontation. Even if we're, even if we're right. And so, Lord, I pray that these people would learn to show their work, that they would begin to study the text in a different way, in an academic way that leads to a spiritual praising of God in your name, because they've come to glean what it is you have said. They can love you and quote that verse with passion and power and confidence because they know what you said, Lord, and they can show their work. So, Lord, help them, help me. As I attempt to do this weekly with even more things involved, I pray that they would begin to apply these principles in their own understanding, their own uh, uh, reading of your word. And that would lead them to greater praise of you, Lord Jesus. And so we thank you and we give you all the praise in Jesus name. Amen. Y'all be blessed. Thank you very much. Appreciate y'all. Say hi to each other. Love one another.